I gotta be honest, I still don't know how to start this thing. Um, hello, hello! My name is Ben Hilsinger, and you're listening to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. The next few episodes are going to be a very self-indulgent best of 2020. I put together some of my favorite clips of the podcast so far with a little backstory for each. If any of my previous guests are listening and you don't hear your clips, it's because I thought you were really boring and I don't like you at all. This first clip is Brody Simpson, and it was hard to whittle down the conversation because I think everything Brody said was amazing, but I had him on to dissect the top five drumming moments that shaped his style, and we went off on a bunch of tangents about groove, dynamics, and Dave Grohl. A good drummer is like a good set designer or a good costume designer. If if the, the clothes and the set just make sense, it doesn't distract you, but you stay in the 100%. world, that's what a yep. good recording drummer is. You know, it's if you're noticed, you're doing something wrong sometimes. I, ha- I had this discussion. I think it kind of plays to the same point. I had this discussion with the artist I was working with yesterday. And I'm like, the whole idea behind this recording thing is, like, people are going to listen to this and most of them aren't going to understand any of the technical aspects of the recording and mixing side of things or even the technical aspects of, of the, the musical side of things, you know, the theoretical aspects and whatnot. But what you're trying to do at all times is not give them any reason to not quite like something and not know why they don't like it. Because mm. if someone hears something and they don't, there's something about it they don't like and they know what it is about it they don't like, they can maybe push that aside and be like, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just the fact that the snare's a bit weird. Yeah, that was a choice. But, but otherwise, yeah. yeah. But yeah. otherwise, you know, tune's rad. There's definitely records like that that I listen to, like some early Shins records where I'm just like, I love these songs. I really can't get around these drum tones. But Interesting, okay. I know it's just the drum tones that are distracting me kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah so that's a big thing, man. Like just... Having everything not be distracting is such a great way to, to approach the entire game. Man, this this tune has just one very specific thing, which I think is... I, I, I doubt it was even considered, but mm. I think it's a pure stroke of genius. And yeah, I'll, <laughs> just basically from the top of the tune. Just, oh, sure, just that yeah, first, yeah. the intro and the first groove. All right, all right. One baby two, another says I'm lucky to meet you. So the thing, <laughs> I don't know why this tickles me so much, but the thing I love so much about that drum part is the fact that he didn't come in on the and four, where the, where the distortion kicks in. Sure, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things where, like, in my head I've built it up to, like, they all sat around in the studio with Butch going, don't know about the intro of this tune, guys, you know, like... Something about that one's not hitting. And then, you know, it was this stroke of genius. It was like, I just won't intro the drum part. But I'm sure that didn't happen at all. I'm pretty sure instinctually Dave Grohl knows how to play a drum part. But it's just something so beautiful about the intro being that guitar tone. And, I mean, that record is full of just rag guitar tones. Mm -hmm. And then the guitar distortion kind of kicks in harder on the and for and. But Dave kicks in on the one. And then when he kicks in, and this is the lesson that... The biggest lesson that I've learned, uh, that I've taken from Dave Grohl and I've been listening, well, I started listening to Nirvana when I was like probably nine, 94. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would solidify a part from 
the get-go and that's the part. Yeah. And it's just rock solid and it doesn't waver. And it's not it's not a drum part in the sense that, you know, he's finding these little spaces to put little nuanced things. He's literally just going, here's the drums, this is how it goes, song mm-hmm. done. And it's just so beautiful. And especially that groove, every bar starts with the double crash. Yep. Hats are on quarters, and it's the same thing, every single bar. And it's just so perfect. We actually had... It's a saying that we have in the studio every time we're recording anyone... Uh, you know, anything, any rock drummer or kind of drummer from like a, a hardcore band or anything like that, and they're doing something kind of mid tempo, it's always what would Dave Grohl do? And I used mm-hmm. to have a sign. I used to have a sign that I would hold up <laughs> to the window of the live room, just WWDGD, because it's just <laughs> such a great example. And I had one, one like young kid from a hardcore band, and it was kind of that mid tempo, kind of bro y hardcore stuff. And, um, I said to him, like, just think, like, what would Dave Grohl do? Like, he wouldn't do weird little linear thing, ride bell, cymbal grab, then go to the next section. He would just go, flam, next section. And that is infinitely tougher. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, I just don't think Nirvana's really appropriate to what we do. And I'm like, well, that's what he did wrong. It's <laughs> it is <laughs> remarkably appropriate to everything. It's man, the dynamics. The dynamics are absolutely everything, and dynamics are achieved through controlled strokes. And it's like yep. repeat, uh, like it's dynamics and repeatability of dynamics is that's that's a groove, basically. <laughs> like it feels good. It feels, and uh, I think the main way I came across this, and I've, fuck, I've said this to so many people, is like editing drummers that I've recorded, and like you know, it's a tune where it's like, all right, I'm just going to hard grid these drums, and you hard grid them, and you just go, still kind of sounds out of time. And it's purely down to the dynamics. Again, a solidified part that doesn't really waver. Mm-hmm. Texturally, it kind of changes. Dynamically, it kind of ebbs and flows. But it is a part that's just, yeah. it's there from the top and it keeps going until the song needs an actual change. Mm-hmm. And I just love that shit, man. I think people spend so much time, and me, myself as well, like I'm super guilty of this, of just thinking, all right, new section, new part. It's yeah. just just not the case like just you know like certain tunes you're just like man if i if i could do absolutely nothing and it still sounded like there was drums on this record that's exactly what needs to happen this next clip is brian de leon drummer for the drums which is a band a very awesome band and albert hammond jr of the strokes this one just makes me happy uh brian discussed steve shelley of sonic youth from his episode of big fat five uh, the last one is 100% by Sonic Youth. That's so sick. It's just so cool. Like, that's just one of those songs where, like, you listen to it in your car and you're like, I'm, I'm a real cool guy. Like, <laughs> um, what I like about I it that. is um, <laughs> it's just a change in texture. It's, you know, it's not a fill. He's mm-hmm. literally, and he doesn't even fill into it, crash yeah. into it, or crash out of it. He literally just goes from the, from the chorus, like, build-up thing to the... And then straight straight to the hi hat, yeah. And it's so effective, and I and I really love that. Like so, like that's all you need sometimes is just not even a fill. Just change the texture, and it like 
does what you need it to do. Next up is Dan Bailey, drummer for Father John Misty and one hell of a recording engineer. He recently redid his home studio with the dimensions of Sunset Sound's drum booth, but the color and material template of Ocean Way Studio B. Here's a few clips from our two-part conversation about studio drumming. I just think that like we can get so can't see the forest for the trees. Well, that and usually drums are going on first, so it's like I know. Look, man, there's going to be so much other stuff happening. That's not on the demo, probably. Yeah, exactly. So like, just understand you need to like. Usually it's when drums aren't like as big and fat as they could be. And it's like, well, they're going to stack five guitars and synths well, and, and you know, to, whatever else on this. You, everything can't be big. You know? Yeah. And you're coming. I mean, you are a great engineer as well. But a lot of drummers, it's like when you do your first track and you listen to it in the control room, mm-hmm. it's not compressed the way it's going to be. It's totally. not, not EQ'd cute. the way it's going to yeah. be. I mean, I more often than not, I, I even if it's in a great room and it's recorded well, that yeah. first take before it's touched up, I'm just like, like this ah, doesn't this sound. Be. Yeah, but but then, it makes, but then you you know you do your little whatever the the move you're going to do on your like your room mics and you like clean up your kick mics a little bit all of a sudden it's like it sounds like oh these sound like drums yeah it's like exactly but i just you know i i like i i feel fairly confident in my in my engineering and ability to like walk in and work at other people's studios at this point and stuff Mm -hmm. but that said is like i'm not it is still the second thing i do like i'm i am a a musician first and foremost and engineering is because i needed to learn to do it to be a better musician yes whereas like if I'm working with, you know, just off the top of my head, like Rob Schnaff in LA or something. And like he and his, his engineer, Brian have a certain way that they engineer drums. And the first time I worked with him, I was like, this is weird. But then the first time I heard a project finish was like, Oh, like they absolutely know what they're going for. And it sounds great. Did you question them? I mean, did you no, in my head at the time? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, of course, certainly not yeah. on the session. No, no. You just have to trust that everybody else cares about their thing as much as you care about yours, you know? Like, yeah, which that's, everyone's, that's a tough Everyone trust. wants it to be good. You know, yeah. like, no one wants this to be bad. And I, that that's just about, you know, just like a point one is, like, you got to read the vibe of the thing. Sure, yeah. Because sometimes you are, like, with specifically the, the producer where I replace things, like, note for note, he is not looking for input. Like, he they know what they want. Uh, we're, we're, they're not going to waste their time trying to get something else. And they, yeah. they have a machine, and it works really well. And, it you know, whereas, like... Rob, for instance, like if I went like, hey man, what if we tried like, maybe I should take the like the front head off and we should go for like a really dead kick thing or something. Like most producers, engineers, like they're hiring you because they want your input. It's yeah. like it's like oh, we're gonna do a Stax record Memphis thing. Like oh, that would probably be no front head if it was 1973 or whatever. You know, like yeah, yeah. You start to like add your little like drum nerdery to it, and then yeah, like, then they get excited. Like yeah, oh, they go like gives, oh, that's what was going on. Shit. This is yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, he wants to make this good. This is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, feeling out the vibe, but you can you can feel pretty quick like what they want your level of involvement to be. Like, yeah, yeah. And and usually it's like the vast majority of people are bringing you in to do your thing. And so if you have an opinion like, you know, obviously voice it correctly and you know like, yeah. hey guys, you know, humor me for one second. What if we tried one where I lay out the second verse and I come in, you know, or and that you, you know, you can always try something and it doesn't work. They're just like, now we know that's, you know, you, you just clicked one thing they don't want off the list, you know, yeah. like, oh, we now we now know what we don't want, which gets us closer to what we do want. You know? Yeah, it's so awesome when someone does, when they're really excited about an idea, and then it doesn't work, and they admit it right away. Totally. It's just like you respect them. You're like, oh, well, you have the facility to be okay with well, saying you're wrong. And going back to not being a vibe killer, that is, if there is like a, a thing that you cannot do as a session musician, is dig your heels in. When a producer mm-hmm. is like, hey, what if we tried one? Where you play the snare on beat four only, like leave two empty. And if you go like, no, that's a bad idea. 
Like, I might be thinking, ah, it's not, we're not going to be using that. But I'm still going to do it because it's faster to just do it than to sit there and talk about it. Yeah. You know, just like, yeah, I'll just do a pass like that because it's going to take the three minutes and 40 seconds the song is. Yeah. Or, or even if we're just cutting that one section, it's going to take 20 seconds. Whereas, like, to sit there and argue about how it's a good idea or not, usually if you... The other thing is don't don't half-ass. Like, if somebody has an idea, like, actually oh, try yeah. it. Like, don't, don't like, half-play oh, it. God, like, yeah. actually play it with some kind of conviction... And just like, and usually, it's been my experience. If I go like, man, I, I kind of already know this isn't going to work, but I'm going to give them what they want. Yeah. And it's like, number one, you're closer to being done because they have another option. Sure. And number yeah. two, it's like, if, if most of the time, because producers and artists know what they want, they'll go like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that they'll hear it and go like, oh, that's that seemed like a good idea, but it, it didn't work out that way or yeah. it didn't translate the way, you know? If anything... I don't know if I'll, I'll articulate this well, but it's it's fun when something is done wrong and everyone just goes like, nope. yeah, that was shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, no, it's like, it, if anything, that kind of makes the vibe better because we're like, oh, we all collectively yeah, well, and that's how you, aren't just letting it slide. That's and not, that's you know. usually a pretty good indicator, too, if, if a control room is like like uni- uniformly behind or against something, that's usually a really good indicator of something you should or shouldn't do. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's like if everybody loves it, it's like, well, that must be great. And if it, like everyone's hating it, it's like, well, clearly do something else. You know? Yeah, yeah. And also it's like, I can never tell if a drum part's the right one when I'm playing it. I, I, it's hard I, to I have listen some drummers that can do it, but totally. I cannot. I, I think that's another, and that's a good way to, if you're, if you're feeling a little anxious or, or, or pressured, that's a good way to, to, buy yourself some time too is like do a take and go like hey do you mind if i come in and hear that yeah like because you can kind of go like oh the snare drum is translating a certain way to where it's it's the note is longer in the control room than i'm perceiving it in the in the tracking room mm-hmm. so i probably shouldn't play a fast 16th note fill because it's just getting lost absolutely but like in the room it might sound great but it's just that's not what the microphones are hearing and that's not what it is in context so i always like to like do a take, especially if it feels like we're we either got it or we're just about to get it. Mm-hmm. Like I always like to listen to that one, and yeah. then you can usually hear the like the good parts about this one are the verse, the chorus is, isn't as good as it could be, yeah. you know. But you could start to like, no, that's the bridge part. We're gonna do that, you know. Like I, I, I always like to to hear stuff in context. And again, yeah, if you're if you're feeling like a little uptight, like that that can buy you ten minutes to like yeah, catch yeah. your breath and like, all right. And to more often than not, you go in and hear it, and it sounds better than you think it does. Yes. So even if it felt like you it's were struggling, you'll be like, "Oh no, this is way cooler in here than it is in yeah. there." You know? Yeah. I mean, and for me too, it's like a lot of times I'll play a take, and I'm like, "Man, I was so conservative on that take. I was just playing it yes. like I barely did anything." Yeah. And you listen back, and you're just you're but like, that, well, "That's Neil? usually what the, the one." Heck? You know, that's usually the one. That's yeah. the. I th- I think there's something to. I mean, even it, it's you know you're you're. You're you know playing dynamically, but also with your parts. Like it never fails. If your take's going to be pretty busy, your time's going to suffer. Like where you're placing the kick and snare isn't going to be as solid as it could be. Yep. And so I think that that's even just the amount that that drums are expected to do in pop music isn't much. Mm-hmm. But also like if if the song doesn't require them to do a lot and they feel bad, that's the whole. I mean, so it's. If you're if you're hitting too hard, your probably your time's going to suffer. If you're trying to play too much, your time's going to suffer. And yeah. like th- things being pocketed is the entire game. That's the only reason any of us get called. Yeah. So like, I like I was I was so much a better drummer 20 years ago than I am now. Like I could play myself under the table. Yep. Because I was 19 and didn't know, and it was just like, look at all this stuff I can do. Yeah. And it was just like, wow, guys hate to play with that guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it was just it took a good solid five or six years of kind of like doing a run of a tour and not getting asked back. Totally. And so just like, oh, and then you, you realize like, 
the less I play, the more my phone's rate. Like, oh, oh this is a, gosh. I see a direct correlation to, to a change I'm making in my career to it working. Well, and we Just were like, talking about this too before we started recording, but how, um, yeah, little moments that are literally it could be a note. The if 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 the verse is you know four repetitions at yeah. the end of the third one has a random little thing that you Just never hear thing. for the rest of the yeah. song. Yeah, but as a drummer, I look forward to that the entire song. Yeah, to to me, it's like I think one of the best one of the best pop songs, and it is a really good uh, uh, example of what we're talking about is Sting Hounds a Winner, which is Vinnie okay. Calyuta playing drums. Okay, yeah, well, and. <laughs> It's one of those tunes where it's, you know, a lot of Sting records don't have the craziest drums on them. Like, yeah. a lot of it's like he'll be playing Shaker and Sidestick for five minutes with no deviation, and it's yeah. incredible because it feels great. Sure. But, like, that tune in particular, it's it's uh, the first track on Mercury Falling from the early 90s or whatever. And it has a lot of Vinny-isms in it, but the verses are so, like, so dry. Like, he's playing so sparse. And, like, on the second verse, in, the th- like, the third bar, he puts the, like... He puts the Rosanna shuffle kick in one the cock don't don't like one time and exactly. it's just like oh my god what no just totally and it's, it's just the like it's, thing only, in the world. it's the only thing that's any different on the entire verse is the added one added kick in the like of a, this weird pushed kick pattern and it just makes the whole verse happen no, and I, it's just like and it's and that's the ultimate example is because that like. That dude can play more notes than anyone who's ever played the instrument. Oh yeah, well, we like that talking, dude is yeah. the best athlete to ever play drums. Is Vinny? K- it's not even close. Like he's the only of the like the guys with the super duper chops that like that. Well, that and like you know the Keith Carlocks of the world are great too. Yeah, because obviously he plays the Steely Dan stuff note perfect and crushes. But yeah, but just those guys who can like also. But then on that same record, you know, he'll have or on Ten Summoners Tales, he'll have freaking you know the the tune in five yeah. that's shreddy as hell, and then he'll have. The, the shaker and side stick tune with no, you know, and it's, and it's done to tape. So it's live. Yeah. He played that for five minutes without deviating. And it's, yeah. And the pocket is incredible. And it's just like, so, I mean, if you're blessed to have good pocket and can shred, that should be your like guiding light. It sure. Be that guy. Cause he's the only guy that I know of that really does them both at the highest level. In the, the Bailey method, you talk about sometimes there's like an old crappy head that looks like crap, but just if it, it sounds if it good, it gets changed. It's like a, you're like, Duh. yeah, I have I have three or four drums in here that are like either the head that I received with, mm-hmm. you know, how many years ago or whatever, or just something that I like stumbled across and I just have I'll even like Sharpie on it. Like, don't change yeah. until you have to, you know, just totally. like just to remind myself that like it's sound it's set up for a very specific thing. And it's the I mean it's the the luxury of having I mean that's the that's the bad part of the gear in disrepair is like the more gear you get the more you have to take care of. You know, like because yeah. you'll go like you know maybe I've been playing I've been on a tour so I've been using like a a, a modern road kit for a bit. And I, I know you know like I get home and three days later I have a session and I want to use my Ludwig kit but I haven't played those in two months because i've been gone and it never fails like oh the heads weren't in as good a shape as i thought or like there's something to be said about if a you know drums just have those like every now and then you find a magic spot and it's like if it finds something it really where it wants to be just like if it's right it's right you know do you do you have uh any like broken symbols or anything that you're like i'm so stoked they're broken in particular have one 20 inch uh agop ohm crash that is the that has like a five inch crack around the bell okay because those i mean i I was playing one live for a little bit and you know you play a dark symbol live you tend to hit it pretty you know you you try to get something out of it which means you're probably breaking them so it's not ideal yeah but for whatever reason you when you hear it with your ear it sounds terrible it's it's the level of broken to where it has the like weird rattle it doesn't decay even it's like it's terrible sounding 
But for whatever reason, like if I'm playing anything uh, that has any kind of like electronic element, oh, something totally. about it, like in the room mics, it sounds like some crazy sample that like, it, it sounds like a, like a weird pitch down 808 crash or something like that. Absolutely. And it has a thing that a regular, like it was not designed to do that, but it just, how mics hear it, it's just a yeah. weird thing. And so like, I could, I mean, Agop, I could swap it for a fresh one, but sure. like it just, I'm just gonna play it till I can't play it anymore, and then yeah, know. the keywords disrepair because what you just described, yes. I don't think is something that needs to be it, broken. Doesn't mean in disrepair. No, it, it's yeah. functional. It's usable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's more like a if you have a snare drum with like three of the snare strands have broken and are flopping around on the bottom, yeah. that's disrepair. That's just exactly. like you can't record that drum because you're just going to get weird rattles and like overtones because the drum's out of balance. And Yes. Yeah. That's, that would be a disrepair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Next up was definitely a highlight guest of my year, Mr. Daru Jones. I had him on right after he played with Jack White on SNL, so we discussed how crazy it was to be at 30 Rock during the whole pandemic situation, but this clip is him discussing why he chose to set up his kit the way he does, and I'm sure he gets this question all the time, but I love the answer, and I hope you will too. I mean, people can look up your setup. I, I love it. It always makes me smile when I see you play. Thank you. Uh, were there specific ones that made you want to have a, have a uniqueness about it? That's a good. That's a good question. So I, I, I'm going to. I'm gonna take it all the way back to when I first got exposed to the Modern Drummer um, magazines. You know, what I'm saying I remember. You know, my mom put me in trouble lessons when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. um, going into high school, and I never forget after the lessons. You know, I would go check out. You know, pay for the lessons, and then I seen that. I seen those magazines at the checkout. I was like, Yo, what's that? Then eventually, I started. I would get familiar with all of those drummers, like you know, the Benny Calayudas and Tony Williams, and, uh, and basically the those magazines. They profile whoever the modern drummers at the time were mm-hmm. and pretty much was what was the what were their identity was a drum kit you know yeah. what i'm saying just like when you when you put your clothes on you know what i'm saying you want to look a certain way if you went to fashion or just in general you know you're, you're, you're in, they say image is everything that stuck in my head coming up you know what i'm saying and i never forget when i seen the drummer's profile what i what i one of the things that i can pinpoint like on Bendy setup he always had a china ride to the left left side so that mm-hmm. was his signature thing you know what i'm saying and those drummers at the time, they all sat really low. So I just I just kind of studied all the drummers at their profile, like Weko. They all had their setups, you know what I'm saying? So I was like, I knew that early that eventually I wanted to, you know, get an image as well and develop my own thing. But at that time, I did like all kids do. You know, you you, you find your heroes. You want to be like them. So uh, yeah. I started setting up my, my, my kits, like, you know, all the people I was listening to. And then later on, you know, like I said, one of my... One of the things that I wanted to do in my career was to eventually develop, develop, you know, my own identity. Um, when I started becoming this hip hop drummer, like in the mid two thousands, because basically, like in my career, I evolved. Like I started playing in church. That's like my beginnings, and mm-hmm. then I graduated. So I started playing fusion. You know what I'm saying? And then I jumped from that. You know, I played Caribbean music for a while, and then I started becoming this hip hop drummer. And I remember um, the culture that I came up with in the hip hop community. They had a terminology saying like. If you was copied off me, that was like, don't bite off me. That means don't copy off me. You know sure. what I'm saying? So that was huge in the hip-hop community. And, and, and it basically, if you were caught, like, stealing or copying off somebody, you had problems. You know sure. what I'm saying? I remember back in the days, you know, as the rappers, if, if you had on the same outfit or chain or you sounded like them, you would get approached. Sure. Like, you, like, people would almost fight just to keep their identity, you know, the same for the drummer community. So I remember at the time, Questlove was the only really drummer that I saw playing hip-hop. And I was like, dang, I don't want to just be a carbon copy of, of a man. 
You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that was that was one of the influences that made me want to change my setup. Because when I started playing hip hop, you don't need a lot of notes. Well, with mm-hmm. the type of hip hop that I was playing. So I downsized. I went from the regular five piece kit, which everybody was using, and myself. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, um, I down I downsized because I was playing hip hop, and I just bare bones. And I was like, man, one day I woke up, I was like, man, because I play traditional grip, as y'all know, the match grip is like this. Traditional is, is a di- little differently. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I had already started tilting the snare drum from traditional. Yeah. Paying tribute to the OGs, you know what I'm saying? Like Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, being fascinated with those guys. And that was the thing. And I was, one day I woke up, I was like, man, what would happen if I if I tilt the floor time? So it was awful looks. <laughs> I just sure. want the I just wanted my kid to not look like like Quest Love kid. You know sure, what I'm saying? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to have no problems again. Eventually I grew into it. You know, I set really high, I like to dominate the drum. So my challenge was trying to change my vocabulary, you know what I'm saying, to come up with my own vocabulary to play with this smaller kit and also just to look different. And then eventually I grew into it, and then I started expanding and growing and adding more adding more drums. Yeah. Yeah, I was always curious if, if one of the reasons, and you've answered it, so maybe it's not, that you set up the way you do, that it almost makes it harder sometimes to just blaze around the kit. So you, if you want to get to the tom, it's a conscious choice that that note has to be there. Um, that's yeah. it. That's it. That's a good observation. Yeah, I had to change my entire vocabulary. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Because when you go from a regular five-piece kit and you're going up this way, and now because of the angles, I'm going down. You know what I'm saying? And I re I remodernized my kit the past mm-hmm. two years, so the, my latest setup is even different from my original configuration in 2006, yep. where I just had to I had the snare drum and just a floor top tilted. But anyway, to make a long story short, yeah, I had to change my vocabulary and figure out what type of feels that would work in this type of setting. And it was cool for me. I like, I like challenging myself. So eventually I grew into it. It wasn't an easy process because I was still playing. I had a jazz and hip hop group where sometimes I would play those jazz feels. Mm-hmm. I had to still figure out what, what, what feels to play for that thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was a challenge. But so me, I like to grow and, and it was really cool and, and, and I made it work. And I'm thankful that I was able to, you know, to figure out, you know, uh, and carve a lane for myself. Um, but it's, it's still it still work. It still work because like like you said, when I hit that thing, it's a choice, and that's that's a good observation because as drummers, when you play them, that's that's what we're doing in real time. We're making choices. Hey y'all, I wanted to <laughs> I can't say I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but 
Go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it. And I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time. And I just kept thinking about it. And so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, check it out, reach out to me, go to Vessel Drum Co. The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right, next up is Eric Downs, an incredibly creative drummer and music director. You can blame Eric for the Everybody Wants to Rule the World metric modulation drum covers that everyone seems to be doing these days, but I had him on to discuss the main roles of a music director, and this clip is a good summation of his views on the responsibility of live performers. And yes, I had to look up what summation meant, just to be sure. You know, I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I'm like a big uh, opponent of technology not because i'm um, a, like a not because i'm a uh, a luddite or anything like that i mean if you've seen youtube videos like you know i program in ableton and build playback rigs all day long like, yeah I do that constantly um but that's not enough in fact i think i mean my flat out opinion on that stuff is that it all should be used as little as possible You're, there should be as few tracks as you can possibly have going on there should be as many to me there should be as many live moments in your set as possible because dude ticket prices aren't cheap man you know yeah. i don't want to pay 25 30 dollars to go see my favorite artist play a very technologically complicated itunes playlist that sounds just like just like the tracks and if that's if that's the case that's not a live concert that's called a listening party when i'm inside the venue i want to know that that money i've paid is going to allow me to witness something that the people who didn't pay that money on the outside of the venue can't see and can't get. Next up is my good old buddy old pal and co-host of the recurring Save It For The Pod segment of Big Fat Five, Gunnar Rolson. It was hard to just pick a few clips of Gunnar because he's very fun to talk to, but this is him talking about two of his biggest influences, Dave Grohl and Matt Chamberlain. And yes, Dave Grohl made the list twice. Just get over it. Love you. definitely hear the guitar and the hi-hat get off from each other but i think my guess is they just left it because those little imperfections are the best parts of all they're my favorite parts of all my favorite records i agree i think um i think those i think those moments of um humanity that's what stand out to people it's like playing all those shows with big data to a click you know, there's always going to be that moment where there's a little bit of, oh, we got off the cliff. And like you kind of look around and laugh. And I, I think that's actually those are the moments that people are are looking for, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that song was a heavy influence on the drum part I have in my own band song by Mother Feather called Red Hot Metal, mm-hmm. which um, 
might be worth listening to just because <laughs> I I pretty bla- oh well, it's not that I rip it off. It's just I <laughs> I like the concept of the guitar is just doing this thing. It's almost like the guitar is in the other room, and then the drummer sits down and just kind of it's exploring the rhythmic space, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like not quite a solo. It's not quite a drum part. It's just kind of I don't know. It's awesome. It's definitely awesome. It's, it's, I just basically like when when the Mother Feather song was being written, I just remember thinking this needs that thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't oh I'm gonna play those fills. It's just the idea of I don't know. It was the idea. I stole the idea, <laughs> and I'm not uh, embarrassed to say it. The record the records I really got into Matt Chamberlain with were the Fiona Apple records, especially the really long title When the Pawn um, album and. It just seemed like he was on every record. He was on like that Wallflowers song, and he, you know, he was the guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really into him, and I was getting into John Bryan, and he he played on all the John Bryan, uh, or not all of it, but it always seemed like if John Bryan was making a cool sounding record, Matt probably played on it. Mm-hmm. At least for like a there was a two to five year period where that just was the case. And I remember I bought this next record that I'm going to talk about and I didn't know who played on it or who produced it and I remember I started listening to the first song because it was a jazz pianist and and I was trying to explore more jazz and get into it because I was going to college for it and the moment the drums started I just was it blew me away and I had to go see like what jazz drummer is this figuring it's like a New York guy and it's, mm-hmm. it's Matt Chamberlain I was like, what the, and, and John Bryan produced this record, but I, I had no idea. But at the time, like that was kind of like, I was just, I don't know, the timing of it was really important to me because I was just so into the, those two guys on a lot of stuff. Um, so the song in particular I want to play is by Brad Meldow. And it's the song called When It Rains. Go to about 50 seconds in. Okay. And just a quick aside, when the the moment the drums came come in and the beat he's playing, it's it was one of those like watershed like moments that just changed my drumming forever. I love it. Wow, what a build up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
did not expect that beat to come in that way. It's the best part. It's just, yeah. you know, it's kind of this, I don't know, you think it's going to be like a 6-8 or waltz. Yep. Um, yeah, I bla- that, like, in terms of, like, a beat or just kind of a vibe I've stolen, like, very literally, you know, that's, that's kind of like the singer-songwriter beat, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's like whenever you play kind of a slow, like, whenever I do anything like that session-wise, whether or not I'm thinking about it, that's probably what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And I also blame that beat for playing too many, for being the reason I play too many ghost notes. Yeah, it's that less is more, even sure. though it's actually surprisingly busy. Okay, 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 okay. Next up is one of my favorite people in the world, Jessica Bordeaux, or Jaybird's Beats, if you know her on Instagram. I invited her on to talk about the top five ways to grow your social media presence, but her overall perspective of the industry is what really makes me love this episode. Her insight is timeless and objectively true. You're going to be growing and changing all the time, and your content's going to do the same thing. I also learned a ton about what I need to improve by filming myself. Like, I... I think some people are also afraid to film film themselves playing because they just don't like what they're hearing or don't like what they're seeing. Like it's, I mean, that's ever, like, I've totally felt that way uh, where I watch something and I'm like, God, I'm just super not happy with that, how that sounds. And, and that's tough. And, but I, but I've also grown so much, you know, if you're seeing your your pinky fly off the stick. Like you, you know, that's something you adjust. You, you're going to get better by recording yourself. You don't even have to post it yet, but record yourself anyway, because the more you do it, the more comfortable with the idea of posting you're going to get too. So that's something I firmly believe is that just the process of watching myself back helped me grow so much as a player. And then, you know, social media is not so scary when you, when you feel like you're really aware of those things that you want to work on and you're always going to be, you know, figuring that out as you go, but it's yeah. very helpful. I will say though, your production has shot up in the last few, few videos. You have a curtain behind you now. <laughs> I do. So you get a little bougie there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for noticing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so number three, and this is, this is a huge one is uh, patience and consistency. Yeah. Yes. So, 2016 was a year that I really like is, is a marker in time where I truly was producing tons of content and, um, getting into kind of the routine that I'm in now, as far as consistency with content. And that's when things really started to take off with my social media anyway, but building to 2016, uh, when you have like no real vision of where something is going or it's, this is, there's no black and white way to go about building a social media presence to have a career in drumming. Like there are so many people that, that go about it so many different ways for me, you know, I was just posting beats and things and then kind of started getting into covers. Um, and then I started to see, numbers. And you mentioned earlier, like sometimes you'll get a video that has, you know, this small amount of views, and then you might get one that has a lot. And then you're always trying to kind of do find ways to replicate what you did in some fashion to keep that momentum going. And it ebbs and flows. And it's really difficult to 
pour your heart into something and not see results. And I think that's where a lot of people tend to shy away from posting is that it can feel really discouraging when you spend hours on end practicing something or producing a video that then gets very little attention. And, and then you, you start to get, in, you could get in your head about what that, I, I think that's another important thing not to stray away from that, but it's easy to get in your head about why a video didn't take off or something. But, but regardless of whatever the reason is, it, it can be really difficult to keep yourself motivated to be in that routine of posting and creating content for the internet when you feel like it's just not doing what you want it to do. And there have been times like in 2016, I had a video um, go viral because the chain smokers shared it. And I saw so much growth in that time. And at that point, I had already been building, I think, right before then I had hit like 20,000 followers, which I was like so excited about. And then they shared my video and, and things really took off uh, for a period of time. And it's you, something like that happens and you think that, okay, like things are just going to keep building, building, building. But I, I remember there was a time after that where things really slowed down. It just felt like it didn't matter what video I put out. It just, things weren't taken off, you know, and lots of different content. And it just kind of seemed like I was stuck and, and when you hit that point, uh, it could be so tough to, to be patient because, well, first of all, you get a little worried because you're, you're, you're wanting to see results, not for just having followers or anything, but you get a little worried in a sense of, you know, what could I be doing better? And I don't know if things are ever going to change what am I, you know, I, and then you, it's just easy to play mind games. You seem like a very positive person. How do you deal with that? Um, you know, now, now I've, I've been in that place so many times where there would just be months that I would really see no difference in, uh, I, and not to say that nothing happened in those times, but there, as far as trying to grow your social media following, which is what we're talking about, uh, I, I feel like I've, I've hit those points so many times where things just kind of leveled out and, and I was just chilling in this place, doing all this stuff to make a difference and, and nothing was happening. And the way I dealt with it was by being frustrated and not giving up. <laughs> like there's, and, and that's the whole point is I felt there have been many times where I felt very down about what was happening, but, but I just, kept, I kept my eyes open. Like I didn't just turn, you know, I didn't just stop practicing or stop making videos and I continued to post and look for opportunity. And that's part of it too. You can't always just, just post things and expect that people are going to find you. Sometimes you need to be actively searching for an opportunity or reaching out to people or, just being very um, kind of intentional about the process and what you want to do. Because if you're just posting a cover and thinking that everything's going to change 
for you. It's not to say that could never happen. You might post a, a cover and, and, you know, your whole life could get turned upside down. You might get the, the opportunity of a lifetime. But I, I think my main point there is even on the days where I felt like I would never see growth on my social media again, I continued what I was doing and thought about what I could do differently as well. Like sometimes content could, um, like I still kind of have stayed true to what my platform started as, which is a lot of covers, a lot of beats. Um, and it's changed a bit over time, but I, I just kept doing what I needed to do and told myself that it wouldn't always be like that. And now when those things happen, like if there's anything that would happen like that now, where I felt like there was a period of time that, um, you know, things just weren't happening. I've, I've seen now so many times that there's always something around the corner every single time that I'm getting into that headspace. Uh, I've, I, I think that when you are not seeing growth, but people are noticing more than you think about consistency. Like you, maybe you're not seeing huge numbers of random people following you, but it's more important to have, uh, it depends on who's watching your stuff. Like you never know who's watching and noticing your hard work and who's noticing that you're sticking around. And people are going to want to help you and give you opportunities um, when they see that you're a presence and they see that you're continuing to, to work on things. And you just need to stay positive and, and never doubt that there's not something crazy that's coming your way because you truly never know. I've had so many wild things happen that if you would have told me a couple years ago or whatever that that those things were going to come my way. I just would have been mind blown, you know. The last one of today is Terry Keating from the Bonzolium YouTube page talking about all things John Bonham. We discussed the top five hidden gems in the Led Zeppelin catalog that no one really refers to, but still feature Bonzo's drums in a really cool way. I really enjoyed this episode. Terry loves to talk and he's so interesting and I could... Just listen to the whole episode. It's our longest one, but I, I wanted to release the whole thing. But as always with the podcast, we ended up going off on a lot of different tangents. And these next few clips dissect Terry's views on the click track, dynamics, and harnessing your true individual feel as a drummer. Like a lot of younger drummers today, I ask them, like students I've had. So if I say, when you listen to the first 30 seconds of uh, um, when the levy breaks, you know, you can hear it in there. The tempo moves a little. It slows down a little at points and stuff. But since I'm on the other, like most people kind of who really started listening to music and the radio by the time, especially the maybe people born in maybe 1985 and after, maybe 1982 and after, all the music they would mod- that they would that would be new to them was all uh, edited together heavily via a click track or straight up quantized. Do you know what I mean? So I wonder how the younger kids today, when they hear that stuff, if it sounds like it's totally fucked up or if they feel the, the music, the musicness of it. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's a whole thing I've put in videos that I've talked about the concept of like perfect time. I mean, if you're a pop band or an electronic band or something, by default, given the nature of the style, you, you probably want perfect metronomic time, you know. 
But I hear all these stories, like engineers, like they're in the studio and producers, and the, and the band comes in, they're like, oh, great song, what's the BPM? And they're like, oh, it's uh, 86, all right, great, and they put that right in. Well, you don't want a bad perform. I mean, you don't want to give anybody an excuse for playing like shit, but, you know, there are, you know, human beings are, you know, we're, we're um, analog, you know, so even, you know, there are, is something to be said, you know, sometimes in verses generally in, in the music we've become, you know, familiar with the verses, you might pull back a little in the choruses, you might just pick up a teeny bit, but all that stuff is really, um, you know, for lack of a better, it's organic, but I don't know. I, I just, um, I have been trying to be a proponent of, of people to, you know, practice by all means to metronomes, make sure you can, you know, do meter and certain things and you're able to play things consistently at certain speeds and stuff. But, but I'm hoping sort of the trend comes back to like recorded music and stuff where people really learn to rely on their individual sense of time because, you know, the dimension of slightly speeding up or slowing down, it's, a, it's, it's actually one of the ingredients we have in music, just like pitches or temp or, or, or um, timbre or, or, you know, whatever the hell you're playing on or, or loudness or softness, you know, I don't even know how the hell I got off on that tangent. No, I love <laughs> it, man. But I think what started to happen too, is the mindset in the sixties of um, that of songs, you know, not wanting to speed up or slow down at least too much. But the fact of the matter is if a drummer needs a click track to play well, they're not going to be good enough to play with the click track well, kind of. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, kind of the, the whole style of a lot of younger drummers today, it's a chops fest, which is I admire the hell out of it. But it's almost like they just put on, it's like, it's almost like, did you ever take karate? I didn't. My brother did, but. Okay, karate, they have things called katas, right? So for like 30 seconds, like a dance where you do this and you do that. So you practice these certain movements it's almost like in drums now, there's like, okay, well, check this one out. You go singles and a paradiddle to the hi-hat and to the, to the bass drum. And then you, that lasts like a bar long. And people practice that till they get really good at it, and then they, they can loop in it, and loop it. And then sometimes when they're playing songs and stuff, they almost think of it like, okay, I'm going to throw that pre-programmed fill in as opposed to playing right from your viscera. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I'm, – I'm sure there's many, many younger drummers that – that's not true where they do play from their viscera, but those things just come out, you know, but, um, it does seem like in a certain way that drumming anyway has really almost become more like a, um, like a musical yoga to like a click track. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's really like, I'm with you. I mean, at Nam, this is kind of going on what you were saying with, with like, you know, their pre-programmed fills at Nam, we have not exaggerating thousands of drummers come and sit down at our booth and all that stuff. And, it's so crazy how, how many of them have their, I learned this on blank.com for five seconds, and then they go into a groove and they fall apart. And you're like, yeah. you're not actually, like, you're missing the whole point. And that, you know, the funny thing is, that is the whole point. Like, it's, it's like when you, drumming is if you're sitting there and everyone's playing a song, and you don't have a guitar and you're, and you're just clapping your hands. That's what drumming is. But wait, let me set that bass drum up. You know, that's what you're doing, you know? I mean, if, um, and that's the thing I never really understood about, like, I remember when I sort of first was introduced with like the concept of like digital, like I, when digital recording came in, I remember way back in the day, they used to have ADAT tapes. They almost look like video cassettes. Mm -hmm. So it was tape, but it was stored via, you know, zeros and ones. And then I remember Pro Tools came out and there was a guy that we had worked with at a studio in Chicago who became familiar with Pro Tools real early. 
And they used to joke around, they call him Protulius, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. And he flew out to California and made a lot of money in the early days when Pro Tools first came out. And he was telling me about all kinds of like auto-tune things. Like they have to sign contracts if like person X can't sing and those types of things. Mm. Like they have the Pravi duty. They're like, we'll sue you, you know. And um, But I remember going in and sort of sitting down there were tracking something. He's like, Terry, would you come in? I want you to play drums on something. He's like, I kind of play, but I, you know, I. So he went in and he played. And it was like, doom, da, da, doom, bada, boom, boom. And I was like, well, this I mean, it sounds kind of rudimentary, but it sounds it sounds a little weird, but it sounds solid. He goes, well, that be, that's because I quantized it. And I was like, oh, and that was the first time. That was probably 99, maybe. And I think in those days, there was a time when you could manually quantize. Mm-hmm. Like, I know you can still do, do it now if you really need to. But now it's pretty much plug and play, I guess. But, you know, you really hear it. Like, it's like um, perfect time when it comes to certain soundscapes and certain chords and, and part of the thing is, this is why I said before to, like, younger kids, I started, if you listen to certain Zeppelin songs, or especially Stone songs, and you hear the tempo get all funky, do you, does it sound good, bad, or sloppy? But it could also be said that people like me or maybe people like you, that when we grew up in an era where it wasn't perfect, we just got, we just got used to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, people could say that. Well, you're just, somebody might, a valid argument, well, whether or not it's ultimately valid, but they could certainly say in a court of law, like, listen, dinosaur, you know, you're just fucking used to shit sounding like shit. And somebody could say that, you know. But I'm fairly certain that if you were to do something where you, and I'm dead serious about this. I saw a an experiment years and years ago where they had a bunch of plants in a, you know, like probably what would be like a hydroponic room, you know, except they, yeah. they were just, you know, plants. And uh, they blasted <laughs> heavy metal from the speakers at it. And it was like thrash metal, like jugga, 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 jugga. so it was, I'm sure they were playing to a click and stuff. And after a few days, the plants started to lean away from the speakers. And they started to kind of shrivel up and, and not do all that well. But then what they did was is then they started playing like um, it wasn't so much whether it was uh, uh, sequenced or not or click tracked or not, but like softer, like um, the Eagles and stuff or like, um, God, what did they actually play? Like Jim Croce or something. And the plants actually started to lean toward it. Do you know what I mean? Wow. So it's, so it's almost like in the universe, it's almost like um, because music, I think, affects people so viscerally that sometimes, it, and I'm talking about an extremely exact, for th- the song's five minutes where it's exactly going to be 73 beats per you know minute the whole time. And if the song is kind of a, like, well, if you have like a loop of chorus where it's like, we're really happy in happy chords, we're really happy in, you might not notice if it's perfect time. Do you know what I mean? But if yeah. you start making little transitions from like, happy, happy, then we get kind of minory. I think that at times like that, the tempo is, is a useful tool to, you know, to, to very slightly make transitions into things like that. And again, it's very subtle and it's very small. But that's the thing kind of about Zeppelin, though, is that Zeppelin almost seemed to have, and, and again, it's not necessarily even just the sound of Bonham's drums, but it's definitely the way that he, it's almost like he was the conductor of Zeppelin. There's just like a certain way people do their instruments, like their personality, their temperament comes out in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I said, to somebody once like their temperament like with bonham bonham i think was a very deliberate like person who just didn't like to be rushed you know sometimes like I, i'm a like Stuart copeland or you know it, it, you know there's certain people that really you know if they kind of talk fast and they're very type a and they like to move fast they're probably more likely to rush a song 
not necessarily speed the thing up, but what I'm saying is, is I think they're more likely to at each at each beat maybe slightly play ahead of the beat. You know, like if you had a room full of people, you know, like in the Queen thing, like. Well, I guarantee you, if you know, when you listen to that, it's like a bell curve. You know, you have some people clapping early, some people clapping on. So, so it goes. So the boom, boom, clap goes. <laughs> And that's the people clapping a little early and clapping late. I guarantee in Bonhamville, Bonham probably would have been one of the people right on or just slightly behind. Where I know naturally with me, I'd be with somebody who'd probably be very slightly ahead. You know? <laughs> me too. Me too. And that's the show. Be sure to check out BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BigFatSnareDrum. The audio you're hearing was edited in part by Isotope RX8 Audio Editor. So go check that out at isotope.com. Cheers.